I need a, a couple of, I guess we'll call them agreements today. Um, <laughs> first, I think we all know what it is to believe something in our bones more than we can actually understand it in our brains. That in some ways our, our hearts catching up to what we feel like the Spirit is doing in us. And so today I feel like this, uh, this message is one that I feel in my bones more than I really understand in my mind. And so some patience would be, would be appreciated today. And the second agreement is part of how I think this might go well, and <laughs> I don't know if it will, probably won't, is if we agree to just jump into the deep end together and then we trust Jesus to come and save us. We may end up looking foolish. Jesus may look at us and be like, get back in the boat. What are you doing? But let's just agree that we'll be kind of patient and we'll see, we'll see where this takes us today and then we'll just trust that uh, all great rescues happen in deeper water. Amen. I, uh, I've been kind of haunted by, by this idea um, some of you will be familiar with this guy. His name is Meister Eckhart. He was a 13th, 14th century German theologian, Catholic guy. And he famously prayed this prayer. He says, I pray to God to rid me of God. And I've been haunted by that for a few weeks now. And maybe you've, if you've been hanging out for a little while, you've maybe heard some of this kind of creep up in the last few weeks, but he, he prays this prayer. I pray to God to rid me of God. What is he saying? Some of what I think he means is that he's praying to God as God really is to rid him of God as he imagines him to be. That what we need, and we've said this repeatedly over the past couple of weeks, is that oftentimes we need God to save us from our experience of God. And again, this has been a theme that's kind of been creeping up, and I don't really know why. And it, it hits smack dab on this issue of how we remember and how we forget. How we go about our lives in these seasons, in these rhythms of remembering who God is, while also being open-handed and willing to forget the experiences we have with God so that we might know who God is to us now in the present. I told you, deep waters, just hang with me. This might make sense. One of the things that I think we fear is this issue of forgetting. We're afraid of, of forgetting. And so we have these kinds of mechanisms and we see these mechanisms play out throughout the scriptures. Our Psalm today is Psalm 126. It's brief. I'll read it to you. We actually opened our service with you if you, if you happen to be here on time today. <laughs> but just in case, it says this, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, when the Lord restored, remembering what God has done for us in the past, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then and our tongues with shouts of joy. Again, remembering what God did for us and then our response to God's action. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We were joyful. And now it shifts into this 
longing. We remember what God has done for us. We remember how what God did for us made us feel. And now it says, restore our fortunes, Lord, like watercourses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. So we've gone from what has God done for us in the past? What was our response to what God did for us? And now we're saying we need God to do it again. And we're trusting that if God does it again, this is what will happen. That those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy. So there's this, this future longing that's cultivated in the people of God. And it's cultivated in them because of how they remember what God has done for them. They don't want to forget because they're longing for God to do it again. This is most of our experience in our life with God. Most of us call back these, these kind of Ebenezers, right? These moments when we remember what God has done for us. And then we allow what those experiences meant for us to, to create in us a kind of longing for God to work in the future. And so the remembrance of those moments becomes important. We don't want to forget them. And here's the deep end of the pool today, is I think in some way we're called to learn how to forget faithfully. We're called to learn how to forget the things that God did for us so that we can remember it was God who did them for us. So that opens us up to the new thing that God wants to do. We don't like this issue of forgetting. I had a great aunt. Her name was Virginia. We called her Aunt G. And I was young when I knew Aunt G. Aunt G had Alzheimer's. And there were moments when Aunt G would join us for Sunday lunch, and she was just herself. And then there were other Sundays when she came, and you didn't know if she was going to know you. <laughs> you didn't know if she was going to remember your name. And suddenly, as this wicked, awful disease tormented her body, she was no longer herself. She was kind of at a table of strangers just being polite. And for those of you who have experienced maybe friends or family members who have gone through this horrible, horrible disease, you know that at some point, the issue is not that they forget their memories. This is our fear of something like Alzheimer's, that we, we don't want to lose the remembrance of the life that we've created for ourselves. That's the fear. But it's not the deepest fear. The deepest fear is that we forget all of those things that make us who we are so that we cease to be ourselves in ways that we know how. This is the fear of something like Alzheimer's, and this is the fear that we have when we hear a word like, we need to learn how to forget faithfully, how to forget what God has done for us. What does this mean? Where are we headed with all of this? I don't really know. I think if we're not careful, we will assume that it's in the seasons of remembering and in the seasons of acknowledging God's presence that, that mark out the good times, the good spaces in our lives. 
This is why we want to remember what God has done, because we think that if we remember what God has done for us, it'll actually empower us to be who we're meant to be. And so we, we say, well, remembering is good, acknowledging God's presence is good, and these are goods, but we think of them as good because it means that God is doing what God has promised, and it means that we know what we're supposed to be doing. This is why we, we fear forgetting and we cling to these remembrances of what God has done for us. Let's look at the Old Testament text and see if some of this doesn't come clear for us a little bit. I doubt it will, but let's see. Isaiah chapter 43 today, for those of you who brought your Bibles. <laughs> 43, starting in verse 16, it says, This is what the Lord says, who makes a way in the sea and a path through surging waters, who brings out the chariot and the horse, the army, and the mighty one together. What's happening here? What is the prophet Isaiah recalling for the people of God, encouraging them to remember? This is the Exodus moment. And then he says this in the very next verse. Do not remember these past events. Pay no attention to these things of old. Look, I am about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The animals of the field will honor me, jackals and ostriches, because I provide water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people I formed for myself will declare my praise. Here we see the prophet calling the people of God to remember what God, who they worship, what this God did for them. This moment that they've marked their entire lives on, this moment of the Exodus when God broke open the waters, pushed the waters away. He says, remember, this is the God that we serve. And then he says, forget all of that. Don't cling to those things that God did. Yes, I am the one who made a way in the sea and a path through the waters. I'm the one who brought out the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty one together. I make them lie down. They do not rise again. And then he says, do not remember the past events. Pay no attention to the things of old. Forget those things that have happened. And why? Because look, I am about to do something new. Even now it is coming, the prophet says. Do you not see it? And it turns out that this new thing that God is about to do doesn't look anything like the old thing. Where once God caused waters to cease, he made a path through the sea. Now God is making rivers. God is bringing water to the wilderness. The problem for the Israelites and for us is that too often we get caught up in what God has done for us that we forget that it's God who did it. There are ways to remember what God has done for us in ways that make us forget and neglect God altogether. This is what I meant a couple of weeks ago when I said, talking about St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa, about this insistence that we need God to save us from our experience of God. God is trying to show them and he's trying to show us that our future with God isn't bound to what God has done in the past. Tangent. It's interesting. 
In the previous chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, God is repeatedly naming himself. He over and over, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. And in one of these repetitions, he says, it is the Lord who is a mighty warrior in his fury. This is how the people of Israel have known God, that God is a furious, mighty warrior. This is how they identify him. And it says that they've known God as they've remembered victory. So they're almost interpreting who God is based on the experiences that they've had with God. And then in the very next verse, it says that I have kept silent from the ages past. I have been quiet. I've restrained myself. And then it says, well, a mighty warrior is anything but restrained, right? So we already have a little bit of conflict. But it says now... I groan like a woman in labor. Here is the new thing that God is doing for the people of Israel. The God that you've known as a furious warrior is now a birthing mother. The way that the warring God battles in the world is by birthing something new into the world, by bringing waters into the wilderness, by bringing rivers into the desert, nourishing us and feeding us. So what's happening? What's the point? What you did know about God is not everything to know about God. And this is why we need these seasons, these rhythms of sowing and reaping, as well as seasons of remembering and forgetting. We need to forget because there are things in your knowing about God that are wrongly remembered. And forgetting or letting go of those things, it doesn't, it's not a deficiency for you. Forgetting and letting go of some of those things actually opens us up to being present to God's work in your present ways that you'll be closed off to so long as we are clinging to our remembrance of God. This is why in the Easter story, we see Mary Magdalene. She's in the garden and she she thinks that Jesus is the gardener. And then in this moment of realization, when she sees who it is she's talking to, it's Jesus in the garden. She wants to cling to him. And Jesus says, don't cling to me, Mary. Why does she want to cling to him? Because the Jesus that she knew, as she knows him, that's what she wants to hold on to. All of those things, this life that Jesus has lived, she wants to bring all of that back into the present moment. And Jesus says, don't cling to me. We hear the echo of, I'm doing a new thing. And so long as you want to hold on to this reality of who I am, I can't be part of the new reality of who I am and what I want to do for the world. To cling to who Jesus was prevents her from who Jesus can be for her. In today's gospel, we find Jesus in the home of another Mary not Magdalene, and in the home of Martha and Lazarus, these three siblings. And what we know and what we haven't talked about is that in the previous days, right before all of these events have happened, is the moment when Jesus does raise Lazarus out of the grave. And it seems, if you're reading the text, that from that moment on, what should be joyful and celebratory There's a kind of 
cloud that's hanging over Jesus. And if anybody recognizes it, it's, it's Mary. Mary is painfully aware that somehow this miracle that Jesus has done for Lazarus is actually opening up a kind of future that is painful. I wouldn't suggest that she knows everything that that means, but what she is aware of is that everything has changed and she's not convinced that it's for the better. Mary seems aware in a way that no one else is. So they're together, they're sharing a meal, and then here's Mary, and she's washing Jesus' feet and anointing him, blessing him with oil. And it's interesting that Jesus is drawn to this this family, this kind of odd group of people, these two sisters and a brother. There are no spouses around. There are no children around. And it's interesting that Lazarus never says a word in the Gospels. Isn't that fascinating? And it's even more fascinating to think that if Jesus knew how this was all about to go for him, that these were the people he seeks comfort in. And people that, I mean, Forget about the 21st century. In the first century, this would have been so, so odd. Almost outcasts in a way. There are some theologians, and a lot of this is speculation, who suggest that Lazarus may have actually had some kind of disability and that that's why there's no spouses, that's why they're still living together, and also part of why he still isn't speaking. And it's here in this odd group of people that Jesus finds comfort, finds the courage to do what he is about to do. And of course, there are a number of unanswered questions about this story. We don't know, is this the perfume that Mary and Martha purchased for Lazarus's body that they just never got to use? We don't know. How long has Mary been aware of Jesus's future, this journey that he's about to set out for, the abandonment that he's about to experience, and ultimately his death? And then in this story, there's Judas and his response to Mary's extravagant offering. (laughs) It shows us that there can be all kinds of evil wrapped up in our well-intentioned criticisms. And then at the end of this story, Jesus makes this claim, the poor you will have with you always, but you do not always have me. You do not always have me. What is Jesus saying? Of course, Jesus is always with us. In the most basic sense, simplest sense, Jesus as God is always present to us, is always with us. And even at the end of Matthew's gospel, we find Jesus announcing to his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what does he mean? How do we not always have Jesus with us? And why does he remind us about the poor? And some of the worst reflections that I can remember hearing We've used this text to talk about a kind of apathy toward the poor, a, a way that we, we can ignore the poor and we don't need to do everything that's necessary to help the poor because Jesus told us the poor are always going to be here. So what good is it for us to help the poor? 
What good is it for us to be compassionate and to be generous and to move toward the needs of others? Because they're always going to be here. We need to get about serving Jesus because remember, Jesus said he will not always be with us. One of the worst kinds of reflections that we can pull from this. But we can't, we can't fix the poor, and the poor are not people who are meant to be fixed. Eugene Peterson has this amazing line where he says that the poor are not a problem to be fixed. They are a people to join. Maximus the Confessor had this idea a lot, <laughs> a lot earlier than Eugene Peterson did. And he shows us that in Matthew's gospel that Jesus says what you do to the least of these, you do to me. And then he goes on to say that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Maximus the Confessor says that Jesus is always with us and he is the poor man. Jesus is with us to the end of the age as the person who is in need. Said a different way, Jesus is telling us, not only am I present to you through God the Father and by the Spirit, I am present to you in the needs of your neighbor. And the temptation for Judas and for us is to care for people in ways that are charitable but condescending. Caring for them in ways that make you look philanthropic. This is why Judas's immediate instinct is to note the cost, to note the value of Mary's offering. My friend, Father Kenneth Tanner, puts it this way. Judas values 12 ounces of perfume, 300 silver pieces, over the human God, 30 pieces of silver. But Mary chooses the better part, to prophesy the death of God by anointing his body for burial and intuiting his rising again by wiping the ointment away. It fills the room and therefore the whole world with the aroma of resurrection. That's what we read in this story. And here's the part that I can't, I can't shake. And the part, again, that I maybe feel more than I understand is that Mary prepares Jesus' body for burial right after she's just watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. How does that make any sense? When you've witnessed Jesus overcome death, call your brother out of the grave, what kind of imagination do you have to have to prepare this one for death? Mary has to forget what Jesus did for Lazarus in order to act in ways that are faithful in the present moment that actually open up a new kind of future for us with Jesus. How do you get there? I don't know. To go from seeing this miracle of life overcoming death and then preparing life itself, Jesus, the word of God, preparing his body for burial. It makes no sense. 
And yet I think this is how we learn to enter into seasons of forgetting faithfully. If Lent is anything, it's a season about forgetting. It's a season about us learning how to forget all of those things that have occupied our lives in ways that are unfaithful so that we can learn how to fill up our lives with what God imagines for us. And remember, in Isaiah, the prophet recounts all of the miracles that God did for them in the Exodus and then immediately talks about the new thing that God is going to do. And it looks exactly the opposite of the Exodus. God is casting waters out. He's stopping the waters, parting the sea for them. And now God is setting waters loose in the wilderness to nourish his people. And in the same way, Mary remembers what Jesus has done for Lazarus, but she has this awareness that no one else has. She realizes that the new thing being done in Jesus isn't about being saved from death. It's about going all the way through death, dying death, all the way down to make new life possible for us. So Mary, she has to forget what Jesus has done for Lazarus in order to see what Jesus is about to do for all of creation. And somehow that forgetting opens up to a blessed and an anointed giving of Jesus' body that makes new life really possible for us. We have to learn how to faithfully forget the things that God has done in the past, ways that doesn't keep God bound to our expectations of what God will do for us. The good news for us is that we can learn how to forget and how to forget faithfully because God (laughs) forgets. God has promised to forget our sins Not in the ways that Jesus or that God has memory like you and I do. God does not have this like hopper of memories that he pulls back from. That's not how God is recalling our pasts. But God's forgetting is the the forgetting, the letting go of everything that is false in us. Those things that are not essential to our identity, to who we are, because the truest thing about us is that we are who God remembers us to be. This is what it means for God to forget your sins, is to remember the truest thing about who you are, that you are beloved. Every week, we come to this table And we say week after week after week, the words of Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. Christ calls us to remember. But to remember is not a mental exercise. To remember is not a recounting of the events. For Jesus and for us, to remember is to to put it all back together again. To remember is to make it present once more, to take the members and to put it all back together again. And when we come and we do this in remembrance of Christ, we don't just think fondly of the time that Jesus shared a meal with his friends. We share a meal as the friends that Christ calls to this table, being present to one another, being present to Christ's presence on this table. And here's the thing. Because of Mary's act of 
faithfulness and awareness, her faithful forgetting that leads to this profound act of anointing Jesus' body. Whenever Christ is remembered, whenever we come and we receive the body of Christ that is given for us, whenever we come to this moment in the Eucharist, we are offered and we are given the body that was anointed by Mary. So that wherever we give thanks, wherever we participate and celebrate in thanksgiving, the world is filled with the aroma of resurrection. That body has been prepared for us by her. And Judas hates it because he can't make sense of it. He can't calculate in his mind how her act actually matters. And this is how it matters. When we come and we receive Christ's body, Christ's body given for us, we have to learn to forget the Christ that's made present to us on the table. Just in, in the same way that Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, he has this instinct to, let's set up some tents here. Let's create a dwelling here for you. Let's stay right here. And Jesus tells him, that's not what we're going to do. Peter has to resist and to forget that instinct to stay here so that the new thing that Jesus is doing can be possible. We have to forget the Jesus that's made present to us here so that we can find and remember Christ back out into the world in the lives of the poor. It doesn't make any sense. And I know it, but I also know that it's true. We can't get so caught up in receiving Christ at the table that we keep calling back to this experience that we can't remember Christ in the lives of those who need us. This is how the world becomes filled with the aroma of Christ's body if we're able to forget and then able to walk out of these doors and remember that Christ is with us to the end of the age in the lives of the needs of our neighbors. If you don't believe Jesus, you don't believe me, maybe you'll listen to Paul. This is 2 Corinthians 2, starting in 14. But thanks be to God, who always puts us on display in Christ, and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We forget the Christ on the table so that we can remember Jesus in the world and we can be the body of Christ spreading the aroma of resurrection wherever we go. And we can be sure that we'll be able to forget and to remember rightly because God who is present to us remembers and forgets who we are and who we are not. God forgets our sins 
which is to say that our sins are not essential to our identity because we are truly who God remembers us to be. And here at the Eucharist, God has given us his own remembering, his own presence and putting together again of his own body. And as we come and make God remembered, we remember who we are. We forget who we are not. We experience the presence of Christ given, and then we grieve the absence in the ways that the world is not yet as it should be. And then as we receive Christ's body, anointed by the hands and the hair of Mary, we can carry the anointed aroma of Christ's body into the world by serving Jesus who is present in the poor. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.